We are not heroes, nor are we villains. Neither kings nor magicians, but we can tell you their stories. We are the Lore Keepers, and we welcome you to Halloween. Willkommen Alume. Sorry, German. Um, <laughs> welcome to Halume. You are listening to Lore Keepers, a lore building podcast where we talk about aeons of history, heroes and villains, and the forces of world about it all. I'm Carter. And I'm Frank. And whether you're interested in stories, looking for inspiration in your own world building, or perhaps you want to participate, we've got something for you. This week, we're talking about vampires. But Frank, how are you doing? Oh, we're finally doing it, Carter. I don't want to tell you about how I'm doing. Ugh. We can't we just jump right to the vampires? Do we have to do a preamble? Oh, we just fastball preamble. Frank, three <laughs> words. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, good. Yeah. No. Okay. I suppose I could expand on that a little bit more. Oh, uh, uh, good. Yeah. Well, uh, the last couple of days have been fine. You know, uh, it's. It's been, we're getting close to the, the Christmas season, you know? I guess it is the Christmas season. Any Anything from the moment after the turkey has entered the stomach fills everyone with yuletide dread. I mean, excitement, right? Because everybody loves not the stress of the holiday season. It's It's great to want to figure out presents for all of your loved ones and, yep. And because you just really want to show you uh, show them that you love them, and you're not sure how to express that love, it's great. Only, the, the the truest way to express love, Frank, is through capitalism. Yes, no, is through telling the people you love how important they are in your life. And you know what? What? I bet you don't do that enough. I don't. Who does? So really? who is the everyone? Time? Everyone listening to this podcast, hit the pause button. Mm-hmm. Definitely come back, but yeah, please right? come back. <laughs> but hit that pause button and call your mom, call your significant other, call your child. Call your Don't call your dad. Fuck your dad. Yeah, seriously, fuck your dad. Come on, dad. Remember, remember when dad tried to put up that tree house and he just he he fell out and his pants got caught on the lander ladder and just ripped up a big hole right in those jeans on the butt and that's what you and, get for buying cheap jeans yeah it's what you get dad fuck you dad don't no, fuck your dad great. Yeah, don't also, fuck your yeah, dad probably, probably don't do that don't do that no don't do that don't do that and then and then now now you can press play and welcome yeah. back welcome back to the lore keepers <laughs> Franklin podcast about uh, where we talk about eons of history Carter, did you want to add anything? No, I, I'm good. I'm You're fine. Doing good. Yep. How, okay, I'm. Go, I will ask one thing, uh, a one obligatory thing about your college life. How close does your break ride up towards Christmas Day? Oh, I my my last day of class is tomorrow. Oh hell yeah! Are you serious? 
Yeah, but then I have finals, but... Sure, sure. I have no finals. <laughs> Do you have two weeks of finals, or just... Oh, but you don't... Okay. Yeah, I mean, no one... Damn. Let me tell you right now, no one... No professor wants to have a final, so they just have all the finals in the last day of class. Man, I feel yeah. That's... Yeah, I have two I, I have two papers I need to write. I'd have... Like tenth, but... I typically got two weeks of finals. It was... It was... Yeah, a lot. Um, or maybe not, like, ten days or something. But, yeah, it was always so much... No, you don't get that in the, you know, I don't, I guess it depends on your, your profession, but the white collar jobs I'm working, you do not get, uh, you don't get that, f- <laughs> that, that free like month of time where you're just kind of wheeling through life. I don't think the blue collars get it either. <laughs> oh, I guess I was just thinking, what, what do you call people who are really wealthy? Gold collars? What color uh, are I don't think collars? they wear collars. <laughs> Just V-necks? V-necks and, and uh, blazers? I don't think they were anything. They're just nudists. This, look at this, is a really, this is a really interesting picture of the very wealthy that you are painting. You think that nudists are the richest people well, in the world. They're certainly rich and, and they're well endowed, typically, shall we say. I think it really depends on the nude beach. All I can say is that if I was super wealthy, I wouldn't wear clothing. You have it here first from Carter, folks. Uh, if Carter were wealthy, he would not wear clothing. So, speaking of not wearing clothing... I live in Florida, man. It's hot. Clothing is sort of a form of shrouding the self in a, in a display of their own self-personality. But you know who doesn't have personality? Or rather Vampires? has so many types of personalities all just stacked on top of each other. Nuns? No, vampires. Okay. Got it right the first time. I sorry. was just pausing for dramatic effect. Okay, nuns. No vampires, sorry. Okay, vampires? I promise everybody listening, I actually stopped drinking alcohol while we do this podcast, despite the fact that sometimes it's really hard to tell. Okay, all right. So, yeah, tonight, Carter and I, tonight slash to morning, or today, <laughs> you know, the three parts of the day. It's too to late to do to a today, podcast. Or to evening. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a T apostrophe. It's this, you know? <clears throat> yeah, because everybody does that. So, Carter, we're talking about vampires. This is a subject that you and I, as, uh, as the lore keepers, have talked about quite a bit in passing, but we've never done a full episode about it. Yeah, which I think is why we're remembering that right now, because if I know one thing about vampires, it's that they're real hot. Super sexy and shiny and, uh... Yeah, so no, no, they're a hot item. Like people love. Oh, like everybody yeah. wants to wants to do their rendition of vampires. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a reason why they're a timeless creature. You know, they're like a or or something that. God, I mean, is Dracula the first example of a vampire in no. like literature? I know no. that there's like stories of vampires that exist like from way way before. Although they, they, those stories actually sound a little bit more like the undead, just in general, than. Yeah, the Greeks had a kind of vampire. It was pretty weird. Oh, did they really? Yeah, there was there was like they're really more like a, like undead. They're like okay. there's like one, of, but they're more like generally annoying than like scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just like what they do. They like run around and like bang on your shutters at night, and you're like, you forgot to bury me. Oh, really? And you're like, fuck! This guy just keeps bothering me. Like he's just keeping me <laughs> up at night. Jeez. Like, yeah. So that's one type of historic story of a vampire. If you want other types, go listen to a different podcast. May I recommend Spirits, a very good podcast that talks about um, real world uh, uh, mythology 
if you're coming to us for that, you've made some very, very bad choices. Because we're not going to give you that whatsoever. All right. So now that half our viewership is gone, Frank. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, where should we start this? Because, um, I, I uh, okay. Yeah, so we knew we wanted to do an episode about vampires, and we figured that, like, at this point, we kind of can't hold it back any further because we have talked about them in so many different contexts. Like, right from the beginning, uh, in the when we talked about the Shrouded Empire, that was, you know, the fact that the Shrouded Empire existed for so long was evidence of the first vampirism. Later in them, we talk about their relationship to the elves and how the elves d- discovered vampirism. Um, I'm not even going to go through the full, normally I would do like a whole list of episode references, but the thing is, is like, basically if you've listened to an episode we've put out in the last, since we started, it's probably had something to do with vampires, which is now making me feel a little like, wow, I, do I have a thing? Do we have a thing about vampires? I mean, I think vampires are pretty sexy. Me too. I mean, just shirtless guys in general, but specifically if they're very pale and sparkly. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, where do we start this one, Carter? Like, well, I, I probably I, do I mean, you've already said it. You've already said it. Dating back, vampirism began in the Sanguine Empire, also known as the, Sh- the Shrouded Empire. Yeah. It was, it was begun by the elves because mm-hmm. they were attempting to find another way to obtain magic. Yeah, and for context, it's not really called the, like, it wasn't called the Shrouded Empire by the people who lived in it. At least not at first. Occasionally you get terms, but that was sort of like negative connotation. So it's not like, you know, the uh, the Empress herself or, you know, anybody else who was running it at a high level was calling it the Shrouded Empire. They were just calling it like the Empire because it was the only real form of established government that existed at the time. Yeah, the sh- I, I always figured the Shrouded, the shrouded right, um, epitome or whatever that's called. Epith- epithet? Epithet, that's the one. Not epitome. That's, a, that's epitome. <laughs> Um, the, the shrouded epithet really was brought uh, by historians to it because right. we we get a lot of record of it being an empire mm-hmm. and right it's massive and all you know but we there's not a lot of record that comes out of it that kind of tells us what was going on right exactly yeah and so like a lot of that stuff is recovered history I mean there are ways of course it's Halame so there's magic all over the place. Some historians even tried to reach... So so I'm actually just going to throw this in here. This didn't exist until 10 seconds ago, but I'm throwing it out here, and I think that this feels good. Um, Carter, you tell me what you think. But I, I like this. I just got this picture of um, that some historians, or there are ways to sort of reach back through an uh, like uh, an object's history. Like, we do know that this uh, this exists within, like, D&D terminology and things, also, I, I like this idea of like, it's like a history of an item. I feel like there's a word for it as far as it's like a psychic history of an item. Yeah, it's like onoromancy or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it's called, but um, whatever it is, at, very, at the very least, mystics would have access to that, if not magicians. Um, but I do think that magicians would have access to it and um, would try. And I think it's the further you back, you know, it's the it's the more difficult it is to actually push those edges and figure out how the thing was formed or whatever because it gains its historic weight as it continues to exist through time and ooh, what about this uh the more significant the event that it sort of encountered or experienced the more vividly it shines you know with that significance since things are you know they they subjectively imprint themselves in the the patterns of of magic yes yes i think i think that's true but i think that also right the more 
vivid, the more dangerous an experience it is for the person who is investigating it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, like there's there's more risk to like what would happen to them. I mean, I think um, their mind is susceptible to the kind of like emotional upheaval the item has been through. Like, say, mm. if it was involved in a murder, the person might like be overcome by like a murderous rage of the person who held the knife. Ooh, yeah. Like it's because I mean, it's an inherently empathetic thing that you're doing. You're basically encountering the sentiments of the people who experienced it before you. So it's like it's like it's leaving it's, you know, a, a emotional fingerprints on the item as it goes back in time. I like that. OK, so this is a sidecar. But where I was going with this was just that I think that the only real evidence of the Shrouded Empire that is is actually visible is from the extremely scant rare items that exist around the time uh, that Avum Secunda was ending and Avum Tertius was beginning. So as a quick recap, um, you can check out some of the previous episodes, specifically um, the episode three. Uh, you can check that one out to, for, for a greater context and sort of a blowing up of this point in history. But um, around that time, Avum Secunda is significant because magic didn't exist then. Or rather, magic wasn't a natural thing just readily flowing across the planet that anybody had access to. Magic being the sustaining life that brings both like, you know, it, like basically it's like virtue incarnate. We sometimes talk about the abstracts, which are basically just the nine forces that magic is sourced from. The abstract forms of things that are considered like virtues. During Avum Secunda, those just didn't flow across the planet. They didn't flow across the world of Siddhar whatsoever. During Avum Tertius, the difference between the two time periods is that that changed when... Uh, a gnome and an angel and some other gnomes and other angels got together and fixed that and basically figured out a way to get magic to come back. So I'm going to say, I think that the history basically limits itself to the only pictures that they have of it are up until the point where magic actually came back. Um, because anything that was imprinting on it, first of all, there wasn't a lot of emotion to imprint when there isn't emotion whatsoever. Second of all, it's extremely difficult to reach back that far. And thirdly, like most people didn't even have emotions to imprint. Yes. So anyways, uh, just like a sidecar, but I just like, I like holding, I think let's, it's a cool thing to keep in mind when we're considering the history of vampires, especially because it takes so many different, they as a culture and a group of beings take so many different forms as we move forward through history yes but it all began right from the elves mm -hmm. kind of obtaining magical essence through blood and right life essence of humans right. typically right so uh they basically farmed humans at some point during the shrouded empire they discovered that they could feed um, off of them not just it through the blood they used the blood they drank the blood but they basically were just doing blood magic they were getting the life force of a person from their blood and as a result like ripping this you know like strips of meat off of bare bones um just like that close to the body you know because everything was so scarce already they would take the personalities rip parts of the disposition off of the person to sustain themselves because the elves felt the ash curse the thing that took all of this magic this these sensibilities away from people they felt it a lot more deeply than the humans um did at the time because they had a lot more propensity or capability to experience emotion yeah and i think and also virtue 
And I think that, you know, this blood drinking came about because while, right, you could just through like the medium of like placing your hand upon the subject or right Mm -hmm. through the air absorb the essence, but there's waste involved in that. Yeah, yes, if I like doing the idea it that through, this produces noise into the system. Yeah, doing it through the right, the vital essence of the person, the blood, much less mm-hmm. waste is produced, and you can get almost all of their magical essence. Right. And so it became, basically became a thing where elves were... It's interesting because at the time, I guess I never really thought about it this way, but um, at the time, gnomes and elves were both doing similar things in that they were creating basically like collection like collecting farms like i think of the moisture farms of uh of tatooine you know essentially just like sticking things out there and just letting the magic trickle into their forms the difference was that gnomes were using crystals and vampires were using people and so by just making sure that there was always tons of humans around the humans over time would develop I mean, they were scant shadows of personalities as they truly were in, you know, in other times, but it was enough for the vampires to sustain themselves off of as sort of like the less than 1%, the 1% of the 1%. Yeah, so now we have a little bit of an origin story for these vampires, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't right, by all means, um, what it is to be a vampire. This is just the the first beginnings of vampirism. Right. So So I think... Oh, go ahead. Do we want to give a little story about, like, what makes someone a vampire? Yeah, I think it's actually, it'd be good now to kind of, like, acknowledge the distinction that what we call a vampire shares a lot of the traits with what you commonly would recognize, but the consequences of those traits have much different implications than they would suggest in, or maybe it's a different, just a different interpretation of similar implications. We should probably just talk about, like, the splintering that happens to a person when they become a vampire. I want to talk Especially about, as they go deeper into it. I want to talk about what it is to be a vampire, because we have this, right, original picture, this blood-drinking picture. But we also have, right, more modern, right, as in closer to Avon Quintus picture. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, like, where do we start with that? Did you have, like, a specific point that you wanted to start with in terms of, like, the implications? Well, like, what what is it about that person that makes them a vampire just the same as our blood-drinking compatriot elves? Well, because they, I think, well, okay, yeah, let's start with this question. Do all vampires in Halloween drink blood? I think my first answer is no. I mean, we've clearly established that their origins came from the fact that, like, people can put their hands on another person and essentially siphon their dispositions from them, their soul from them on on some level to nourish themselves. It's, It's necromantic magic. Yes, it is definitely necromantic at its core. So maybe vampirism... In the same way that it can be associated with, like, would you consider a thrall to be a vampire? Somebody who has been drunk from and is now kind of under the command of another person. Is that a, is that a vampire? I mean, they're a vampire thrall, but they're not a vampire lord. Okay. They're still a vampire, they're just not the, like, truest form. Yeah. So I think, um, and, and I, this, is, this is part of why I wanted to do this episode, is because, like, for instance, can vampires go out in the sun? And if not, why? I think so, yes. Okay. I think so, too. I think that there's a division within vampirism that prevents them from being able to. We can kind of 
suss out the pseudo science behind that later. But I think for now, I'd just say there's they're probably avert uh, like they have an aversion to sunlight. They don't like to be in it. I think that they prefer darkness, but I don't know why. Like, why would they like that? Not just because, like, oh, I'm a sinister figure and I like spooky coffins and shit. Yeah, I, I would understand it in the case of the vampire elves, right, in the Avon Secundus, mm-hmm. because of, right, the great ash clouds and all this yeah. business that was going on then. Well, and also when that, like, all disappears, like, you just have this barren, sun-baked earth. So, I mean, maybe... Maybe the idea is that like uh, vampires are avert, like avert to the sun, actually just are sourced more from a cultural difference than an actual physiological one. Like it was seen as a point of wealth if you never had to go out in under the burning hot sun during a time when like the entire world was just baked under it. You know, you sent somebody else to do it, so vampires became known as these sort of like pallid creatures. Yeah, and maybe also that right given the vampires would be some of the most emotive of the bunch, they might, right, they might most, more so than other, right, especially the human cattle, they would flinch away from this, like, hurtful sun mm. that's just bearing mm-hmm. down on them, whereas yeah, the cattle just, would barely notice the pain. Maybe they just have, like, really thin, super sensitive skin because they're so filled with nervous energy that comes from their obsession their need maybe or maybe they're just really twi- twitchy maybe <laughs> they're just really twitchy well i mean they're definitely erratic creatures i feel like i mean i do want to just get to that i feel like like we should we should talk right. about like the fragmenting just because maybe such a this is what makes a vampire a vampire this fragment yeah well i mean i would definitely say like this is i think if we're talking about like core things this is definitely the number one core thing above all else is like what it does to you for you know you have to be able to siphon off somebody's personality their disposition whatnot and the resulting of doing this sorry were you gonna say something i was gonna make a joke oh okay (laughs) it's too late missed your timing there maybe maybe i'll give you another window in the future but the result of doing this is that if you're familiar with harry potter is it okay to spoil the last book no it is if we're going to say hey Harry Potter spoilers for the last book. No, no. we I can do this without jump to forward if you can. Well, you just spoiled it. No, so. I didn't. I didn't. All I said was horror cruxes. Yeah. Well, the, maybe the. Uh, yeah, I guess. Okay, I'll just say. Mm. Well, I can, now that I I've can said that though. Seriously, now that I've said that, if you really haven't read the books, go fucking read them because otherwise, it's going to be spoilery enough that you know that there's like a connection here. When a person is a vampire, so like, okay, I'll, I'll I'll kind of like explain it this way. When vampires first started being a thing, and they like, it was a whole hoot and holler, and all the elves were super into it because they were like, oh, hey, here's a solution. You know, th- not all of them went and did it right away, but it became harder and harder to push against that. And those who were um, not practitioners. Um, it started to become something where it was like actually became illegal to not be a vampire if you were an elf, essentially. Um, and those that were seeing kind of the first signs of this were like, all right, let's get the fuck out of here. And those are what became the barren elves. As this gets like more intense, the, uh, the you know, and all of the elves are becoming vampires. It's not until about the first um, hundred years or so after this becomes like a very common 
you know, in vogue thing, the first effects of the degradation that happens to people as they start to fragment themselves started to occur. Now, like, what am I talking about when I say fragmenting? Basically, whenever a person partook in this necromantic blood magic, they were replacing a part of their own soul with a piece of somebody else's. So if I go to 40 different people and suck dry, like, just a sliver of their nature, if there's barely any personality left, I'm not going to get much, but I am going to start to take on many, many different people's personalities. And this starts to create a muddled and broken picture where it reduces my humanity, you could say, and it starts to add on all these other people's dispositions, their natures, but only in these tiny slivers, these fractions of who they actually are. The further as time went on and the deeper people drank, the more corrupted their personalities were, the more schizophrenic they became, the more disturbed as as, as creatures. They like started to lose any sense of, of what they were and just became completely charged and driven and somewhat reminiscent of the Riven that would be to come. However, however, looking forward at um, the possibility of vampires in eras with magic, mm -hmm. it becomes much, much, much worse if yes. a vampire were to right, suck someone off in this way because... <laughs> Because there's a lot more to draw. Yeah, because suddenly this person has a fully-fledged personality, right, fed by magic returning to the world, right? This person is a regular person, not some sort of human cattle with barely any sentience left, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we're talking about, like, in Avum Secunda, people aren't even primates. They're not even, like, apes in terms of... Because apes, you know, a gorilla can feel sad. You know, you think about Coco. Coco is full of personality and, you know, thought and stuff. I think Coco's dead. Well, she is, but... You didn't have to say that on air and make everybody feel sad now. Coco was sad. Coco isn't sad anymore, Frank. Yeah, Coco true. is in a better place. But she was also very happy. What was, was, was the name of her kitten Ball? Is that what her kitten was named? I don't know. I don't know. I loved, I loved seeing it. Anyways, whatever. Uh, but yeah, like we see tons of personality in a lot of animals and stuff. So this is kind of different from that. It's not just that people weren't smart. Their intellect wasn't affected necessarily like they were still brutish creatures um that were mostly led by their id but it wasn't they were it's almost like they're they're sleepwalking yeah yes like they were never really truly awake or alive they you know they never bothered with language because it not because they couldn't learn it but because what was the purpose of knowing language it, it didn't actually help in communication if you simply just took what you wanted or tried to avoid somebody that you didn't want to you know interact with you know, the elves held on to all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, as a result, common tongue can honestly be traced back to the, sh like, the Shrouded Empire. But, um, but, but, like, as far as humans went, yeah, they were, like, yeah, less than, less than monkeys. So, Frank, we've established that one of the common things that unites all vampires is this fragmentation of the soul mm -hmm. that occurs when, right, the vampiristic act is undertaken. Mm -hmm. So... It began in the Sanguine Empire. It began with the elves. It began with blood drinking. Like, what do vampires look like in other Avums? Do the, are they still around? Yeah, well, so, and this is one of the things, is for a long time we have recognized that uh, elves are the source of vampirism. But the more that I've been thinking about it these days, I think that, because I, I didn't, 
<laughs> this is going to sound kind of odd, but I didn't want it that only elves could be vampires. I wanted to know that like anybody in Helme could become a vampire because it's like otherwise what happens if you know an elf if an elf sucks in elf's blood does it always become a vampire if an elf doesn't if, you know sucks in a different like what makes elves different from other creatures in this you know I think it's just anybody who knows yeah. the magic right I think it's they're the first to learn it yes I think it's yes and that that's the thing they were the discoverers and there are always there will always be sort of like a mark on the soul of the elven cultures as a result of that at least the ones involved in this those who didn't you know detract from it but um i think as far as uh and indeed actually that would be kind of a cool thing to revisit later um but like maybe there's literally something where i mean especially when we're talking about the avaril which uh if you're curious you can check that out in episode 15 episode 15 um ghosts in the dream uh if you're curious about what the avaril is but it's basically like a sustained dreamscape that all elves experience that is like sort of the tales of those who've gone before them so like vampirism will always be a shadow in that place it will always be a shadow that like elves grow up under even if they were not necessarily associated with it but yeah it's like slavery (laughs) yeah uh yes it's yes actually that's a really good analog i mean uh, honestly I wasn't trying to push that too hard, but I wasn't avoiding it either. I mean, the fact that, like, Americans are specifically, like, white Americans are always going to have to, like, contend with the fact that their ancestors, uh, if if they, not they themselves, you know, being racist or whatever, were a part of that. And that that's always going to, like, shadow who we are. I think young elves have a similar kind of idea. It's just like, you know, that sucked. I don't, yeah, I don't think that's okay. But right, yeah. don't like be pissed at me because this happened, you know, a thousand years ago. I had nothing to do with it. Right, right, exactly. Like, I mean, it really, and it, it totally depends on, yeah, how an elf decides to deal with that really just depends on the elf as they grow up. But, um, you know, and especially without getting super into like sociopolitical <laughs> modern day climate more than we already do, like the fact that this stuff does tend to repeat itself in hell may anyways, you know, it's like it's America. Wasn't the first example of slavery It's one of the last, also, <laughs> unfortunately, you know. um, one of the last versions of official slavery, but like hun- for hundreds of years, the word slave comes from Slav as in like the, yeah, Slavic the Slavic countries. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't think you were avoiding the comparison too much considering the elves also owned humans as slaves. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean like, yeah, literally analog there. The, the, the slavery of the elven nations like was built on the backs of the shrouded empire but okay so but we're talking about other vampires as well now um a tiefling could be a vampire a dragonborn could be a vampire a refiak could very much exhibit vampiric natures uh we'll talk about that someday (laughs) all Uh, right um but basically anybody who is afflicted with the sickness like you know it's it's us interpreting the common lore in our own way that's if this is the, your first episode that you've listened to, welcome. Uh, that's what we do. <laughs> if you've listened to any other episode, you already know this. Yeah, so anyone can be a vampire, not just elves. Though mm-hmm. elves are the stereotypical vampire. Yeah. And if we're starting with just, like, general appearance, I think that they start to lose the sharpened ears. Or I think that their features become... They do start to morph and change, but it, they morph and change with the people that they're drinking the blood from. They start to take on just, like tiny ticks like maybe a person has like some pretty deep crow's feet in, around their eyes you know maybe uh after drinking from their blood like within a couple of weeks the uh 
the vampire will start to develop just like loose like wrinkles around the edges of their eyes not not like super dominant prevalent like right away but like you can see the hints sort of ghosting on their face of the different people that they have drawn from and so they start to look like an amalgam of especially if they're drinking from many many different races they start to look like amalgam of all races I think this is something that I think one of the things, the big markers is, um, and this I take, you, are you, are you aware of the, um, common, I guess like, it's not really an idiom, the common kind of saying that the eyes are the windows to the soul. Oh uh, yeah. I think that's actually from the Bible. Oh, really? Yeah. First maybe. biblical quote on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We've never talked about the Bible before. <laughs> Or <laughs> I should correct. I've never talked about the Bible before in this uh, on this podcast. Totally. So I think that the eyes are the first to change. Mm, like the, maybe like when you look into them, you can start to see that there's something a little disturbing, kind of off about this person. Yeah, and I think I think that um, it affects eye color in an interesting way. Yeah. How do you like what What are you picturing? I'm picturing like. Um, their eye color may shift, like almost depending upon, I, I want to say quote unquote mood, but it's more like the fragments of their souls and which is dominant at that time. Okay, sure. Like, oh, I, oh, I love it because like you can totally picture a moment where they have like really striking blue eyes uh, in just a sudden moment there. They do something kind of rash or like maybe they something kleptomaniac and they're in have like sort of like manifesting the nature of a different being. And all of a sudden, their eyes just flash green just for a second, and then it's gone again. Yeah, it's something like that. And I think that if it if they're like really an old vampire who's like consumed mm-hmm. vast amounts of souls, that their eyes are just like permanently multicolored. Yeah, and at that point, like the thing is, is I think that's actually a good side trail to get on for a second. Old vampires, like the older, the the really old ones, like, cause that's, that's the thing. Since they're technically undead, they can quote, be undead live. I don't know how you want to interpret that. They can be around for thousands of years. They, because they don't die, you know, they just come back. And if they continue to drink this blood from other people, um, that like, as long as it sustains them, they, they'll get more and more fractured like this until eventually there's very little of them that's left. And uh, there's your Harry Potter reference. Hi, if you were, if you were, if you were skipping the Harry Potter spoilers, don't worry, they're over now. We got to the end of them. Glad you skipped 20 minutes of (laughs) context or whatever. I'm just going to say it here, Frank, and you tell me if you're okay with this. It's entirely possible that there are some vampires around from, the elven origins of vampirism. I absolutely, I'm counting on that. I mean, that's too good of a story opportunity to pass up. And these will be like the elder lords, like just incredibly broken. But I think that there's a like a point you you get to where quasi like unified through brokenness. Yeah, I mean, I think that anybody who's stuck around that long has clearly been able to sur- surmount some insanity. Like something that would be them being completely lost to their madness uh, and becoming almost, uh, this is kind of interesting, but almost animalistic themselves and being able to only follow a fracture at a time um, and being completely just led by whatever is the, the first impulse that comes into them. I think that in order to avoid that, they have to 
do you think there's a spell that they cast over themselves or like if you imagine a bundle of straws like being about uh, like twined together forced to hold tightly and so like creating like this tension and this stress i'm imagining between all these personalities bunched together but that there's some sort of enchantment that forces them all to maintain sort of a semblance of of coherence i was gonna say that i think there is a kind of like circlet that these like great vampire lords can wear that will either allow their will to be greatly dominant of the over the other parts of their soul Mm -hmm. something like this it it basically like enhances their own soul for some it it kind of it's it bears some a similar nature to the way that a lich will enchant a phylactery with their their soul to like keep them in one place the difference being that the phylactery of uh, like for a lich keeps a singular soul and is a much more difficult thing to hold together but i do love this idea that it's it's in an object and imagine like how closely they would guard it and like if a person were to try and wrench that from their forehead they could start to already feel like things unraveling and they'd be like no no and they're like reaching for it and trying to like pull it back and stuff hissing and snarling yeah but i definitely think like if they didn't have this like i think that they become much less like reasonable but they're yeah. still they can still like take over themselves for moments but it's like mm-hmm. you know moments of clarity and like a vast ocean of madness yeah well it's because they're outnumbered it's they're like the the only thing that they truly you know you can kind of think of it as like if you had complete control over an army of people and that army tried to revolt against you and the only thing that was holding them in place was like you're sh- sort of shackling them all to your will you are still only one person you know, if it's you and another person and you're making them weaker by drawing from their life force, you know, then that one person is not going to be able to fight against you. Hopefully this metaphor isn't getting confused with thralls because I'm talking about sort of a metaphysical environment within the person. But like yes. the idea that, you know, if those shackles are ever removed, even though each person may be incredibly weak, there's still only one of that other person and your numbers can eventually overwhelm them. And maybe you can destroy them from the inside and at least, like, release yourself. Although that's probably not what's going to happen if you do end up destroying that control point. And I think that, um, for the most part, that kind of thing doesn't happen simply because of the the fractured nature of this Mm -hmm. vampiric soul is that the fragments don't really have wills anymore. They're just kind of broken, sad... They barely understand what they are. You know, they don't even have a glimmer of an understanding, like as dimly under, uh, like illuminating as, as, as like the, you know, the primal humans of Avum Secunda were like, this is orders of magnitude, like less aware. So I definitely think it would only be through the collective angst that they could ever have like a hope of, of pushing against it. And the circlet just basically ensures that that never happens. However, it is different, I think. When you have, right, many full people that have been consumed past, right, in, in avums of magic. Mm-hmm. Because I think these people are fractured importantly, but are more whole than the cattle yeah. people could ever be. Yeah, they're less like strips of meat on, on like bare bones, you know, like difference between like, you know, ribs and... God, that's a weird metaphor. They're just, yeah, they're they're more complete in terms of, like, what it is that the vampire is devouring. Like, you can think of, maybe put it this way, like, imagine you have a vampire lord. Oh, this is kind of a cool idea for some storytelling. A vampire lord 
uh, or maybe even like when we're if we're talking like empress level, you know, somebody who has an entire heritage of people that she or he has made their thrall. Uh, or not thrall. Uh, I guess what do you call a vampire that makes other vampires? I mean, that's a vampire lord. What do you call their progeny? Their scions? Um, you could call them that. We'll go with scions. That's a cool word. <laughs> um, I feel like that's a word that's used in vampire lore. Maybe not, but one who has created many, many other vampires. Those, you know, parts of those vampires who have become full fledgling, like powerful, like lords in their own right. Oh, idea. They would have larger chunks within the vampire, you know, tyrant. What's your I idea? Dare you not start from my idea. <laughs> no, no, no. What's your idea? Blood father, blood mother. Should be oh, bad. that's so good. Yeah. Okay, do you want to hear my idea about blood fathers it. and blood mothers? Let's do it. Blood patrons and blood matrons? Let's do it. Okay. Like a blood father or blood mother is what you refer to as like one level above. But when you're talking about like the family in general, whoever's the root of the family is your patron or matron. Okay. What I'm thinking is that they, it's not well known because the tyrants, the matrons and patrons are terrified should any of their kin ever find out about this or not terrified, but like definitely fearful or like don't want them to know this, but this is like deep knowledge that you only like gain if you've been around for hundreds of years and only likely unless you discover it on your own because somebody else has told you it that there's a secret weakness that the tyrants have and that is that the souls that they have like or like the chunks of souls that they have received from other vampires or by like creating vampires actually have a moat of potential to control that tyrant so i'm totally picturing like if you had like a a a vampire become aware of this that it like sort of like reaches out to its patron and plots and plans over years and gets things like ready to the point where they can actually subvert the control and become the tyrant themselves and put the patron or matron under their thrall do you mean like a literal body transportation I think like it's a domination think, of mind. I think it's more like a domination of mind. In the same way, this is a good point because it's not necessarily that the lords. I just, I'm, I guess, I'm just picturing it as a two-way street, like that. The, just because that piece of the soul is no longer attached to to the vampire after it's been taken away and grafted onto the tyrant, if that if that vampire that's like sort of the blood child of this tyrant seeks them out and looks for them it can sort of like find its own piece of its soul somewhere in the world and eventually if it builds a strong enough connection it can sort of like reclaim that and then infuse that with their own power and sort of like uh destroy the 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 tyrant from within what i was imagining was that either through like magic or like you know cutting themselves with a soul dagger and then plunging it into the tyrant and thus like infuse it like basically tearing out their own soul and thrusting it into the tyrant mm. thus making their own soul whole and dominating the tyrant from within that's what i was imagining like literally tearing out their own soul and stabbing it into someone else to take them over from the inside yeah. 
that definitely like wafts of phylacteries and i love the idea of a lich helping like a younger vampire out to take control of a tyrant by like helping them craft this soul dagger to then you know in in return they get a piece of the pie or something like that oh that's oh, so geez. sinister also also frank uh, or future frank as it were we need to do an episode about liches. Oh, we absolutely do. Um, for those of the uninitiated, a lich is simply an undead lord. They're usually uh, pretty ambiguous Wizards. in terms of what their powers are, but they're usually like, in the same way that we're talking about vampire tyrants or whatever, they just have control over like armies of undead. And the, the key thing about them is that they kind of can't be killed. They're even more unkillable than a vampire because their soul does not exist within their bodies as long as their soul is hidden in what's called a phylactery they can always reform themselves i always imagined liches as wizards seeking immortality who mm -hmm. right put take out their own soul place it in a safe sp place and then write you know using you know dark forbidden necromatic magic yeah rule over vast stretches of undead armies to conquer the world kind of yes thing. Yes, totally. I mean, you pretty much have it uh, like nail on the head. I think my one piece of flavor that I'd push is for liches due to the metaphysics of Halume. I, I, I hear it joked all the time. And I think this is I always love kind of this idea in in like forums and things where like, I don't know, you read about people where it's like, oh, yeah, no, you know, everybody always puts their phylacteries in like these, you know, significant items or whatever. Nah, like just put it in like a, a nail in a in a door a thousand miles away you know like why why ever put it in the same place that you are uh i i think i think that i would just say in the world of helame i think the thing whatever it is it has to have some significance to the uh to the lich because it basically if it doesn't then it doesn't have if you think of that connecting that two-way street that point that they can find they can't locate the phylactery themselves if it doesn't have some significance to them. I, I also think that... It's like an emotional waypoint. Sorry, I also think the material is probably somewhat important. Yeah, probably. Well, I mean, there's a whole complicated spell, I'm sure, that comes into, like, that That has, like, some of the rarest materials in the world. You know what? I'm going to say it. Liches require Erebor seeds. All right. They require pieces of the crystal, the Erebor crystal that was originally, like, at the heart of Sadar. Um... And after it was shattered into the ash curse, like they need one of those as being like, or maybe it doesn't require it, but it's just about the only material that's actually valid. You'd have to essentially synthesize something in terms of its equivalence for its necessary ability to possess and and maintain a resilient connection and, and protect that soul over a long period of time. Ooh, I just had an idea. What's your idea? Uh, what do you think an alloy of adamantine and mithril would look like? I'm sorry, but I can't answer that question. All right. <laughs> For sake of, uh, it's a, it's, it's a, it is a, oh crap, what, a seal. It is a sealed question. Well, it looks like I am a clever little boy. Mm, you may be onto something. I couldn't possibly say. Okay, we should get back to vampires, though. Okay, yes. so you got the tyrants. You got this family structure. Let's actually talk about that for a second. How do you think societies manifest in, like, future... So, obviously, we have the Empire at the beginning, right? But, like, it's also the only thing that it, that is any manifestation of government for the that entire history. But, like, after people's virtue returns to them, we see governments of all sorts, you know, first being formed, you know? It's definitely 
very similar to how Western civilization is basically just copy and pasting Greek right governmental structure. Yeah, it, 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 like pretty much all of the Westerns, like yeah, civilizations are just taking that template and just doing their spin on it. Yep. So, that. so like, I mean, yeah. Well, then, what do you think are the okay? We have two. We have a fork in the road, and I've never felt it as strongly as here before. Like we can revisit one, but we got to choose one right now. We could either go down the road of what are vampire societies going forward and how do they look, or we could say, let's stop for a second and think about how those first Avum Tertius societies were impacted by vampiric government. And like, what did they look like? And what are some of those shadows, sort of the equivalence of the shadow of the Roman Empire that is cast pretty much eternally over Western civilization? What are the equivalents of those for Halume with vampiric government? Well, the latter, obviously. Okay, yeah, you want to do that one? Yes. Do you have any good, like, starting points for, like, considering this idea? Well, let's look at Avon Tertius for a moment, shall we? Yeah. Uh, humans are enslaved. Yeah, that's true. That, that humans are still enslaved. It's still pretty much elves who are defining governments for the most part. Other races are doing it, too, but they've only just started, like, you know, they don't have the whole track record that uh, elves have had of creating empires. Um, so they're more just kind of trying it out on their own. And a lot of yes. them, I think, are non-starters. A quick pause. What, what, what were the dwarves doing in Avon Secundus? Let's see. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we've ever talked about them. The, the dwarves resulted from the divisioning of halflings and gnomes and dwarves. All came from the Dosumai. Was their progenitor race, which like basically that shift happened during Avum Secunda. Yeah, and but, but we know and the I have never considered stuff. that question. Me, the dwarf lover, me, the, yeah. the the guy who cannot stop talking about dwarves in the same way that uh, Carter can't stop talking about elves. How have I never considered that question? Also, I think I, I'm a more of an elf lover than you are of a dwarf lover. Yeah, probably. Thank you. I think they're just kind of humorous. I get, I love their dry humor. I mean, like, I think just growing up in a Anglo-Saxony slash, you know, Scandinavian <laughs> upbringing, I definitely, like, really relate to just, like, the completely flat humor uh, of, like, a dwarven culture. Anyways, I, I don't know. Well, you know what? We'll have to think about that one. I'm just, I, I can't even touch that one right now. I feel yeah, like apparently that's just they weren't making the government. back of my mind. <laughs> Yeah, apparently, okay, so they weren't making government. We know the elves were. Yeah, the gnomes were like communists or something. Yeah, they were definitely, that's actually a pretty good reference to say. Um, they were very agrarian. They were extremely violent to anybody who wasn't one of them. But within their cultures, they were highly insular farm life. So extremely violent to outsiders um and very protect protective of the veldt which we will talk about one day i said gnomes not the not halflings oh i thought you said halflings i'm sorry i said gnomes yeah i think gnomes Gnome. and halflings are both communist gnomes would probably be the closest to a real working government because they actually had to figure out how to get it to work between them and angels and they had Excuse the help me. of angels too Excuse me, the elves conquered almost the entire known world. Yeah. I call that a working government. Yeah, I'm talking about Oberiska. I know. 
which basically did nothing in the grand scale of Halume. I'm sorry. <laughs> did you just say that Oberiska was did nothing for the entire what? What are you smoking? Compared to the elves, come on. Okay, governmentally, sure. I'll I'll concede that. I'll say that they probably had a very small impact. If you're not considering the fact that there wouldn't be magic if not for Oberiska. Hey, the elves are going to figure it out eventually. As far as the vein of, of government goes, totally. I can totally see that. But yes, they had angels, so they were cheating. Yeah, they were definitely cheating because although like the thing is, is that maybe that's more where like the sentiments of religion come from is like that that might have been a larger contribution because I think there's more of a there was like more of a not a theocracy. What's it called when you have representatives, but not actually God at the center of your government? It's like a theo something, something, something. Theocratic Republic? Uh, you could probably say that. I'm just gonna you look could spin that. I don't but even like the thing is, 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 it wasn't really a democracy, or I mean, not a democracy. It wasn't really a form of government, whatever it was. Um, it was more like this is how we relate to, because it was all the angels knew. You know, they knew their houses. They knew like, uh, yeah. When you're angels, you don't really need a government to tell you what to do because you just do yeah. the right thing because you're angels. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think a thearchy. Okay. Nope. Uh, no, theocracy is when you have priests or religious law. Ecclesiarchy is what I'm thinking of. That's when, okay. like, clerics rule your, your government. Okay. Yeah. But, so basically, the elves, when we had, right, when the the great shrouded empire, empire dissolved. <laughs> the shrouded <into>, empire? <laughs> when the great shrouded empire dissolved, mm-hmm. dissolved into a great many different states. Mm-hmm. This is where we kind of get the idea of Avon Tertius and many fantasy uh, fantasy settings of many small kingdoms that are all vying right. against each other. Yeah, so this is our equivalent of the collapse of the Roman uh, the Roman civilization. And there's kind of two different instances um, that we've talked about. It's like early Avon Tertius or like mid Avon Tertius. And also, you know, we see the first cracks in early Avum Tertius, but they don't last until later. And then also in Avum Cortis, we see similar things, but that's more like they're not known as the Roman civilization or the Roman Empire anymore. They're known as like the pieces that are being picked up and fought over. It's kind of like the difference between full on war and like the power of troops versus like sallying a position within houses, political houses. Yeah. Um, but, like, yeah, all of this really starts with the Shrouded Empire losing its footholds or beginning its decline at the beginning of Avum Tertius. Yeah, and, right, they did it the same way, right? All these different splinter elven civilizations basically did it more or less the same way as Granddaddy, Granddaddy Shrouded Empire. Mm-hmm, right. From them came, eventually, right, as we can name Cortis and Quintus, the freed human slaves kind of took the, a similar stance. However, right, their their ideas were modified by the dwarven invention of capitalism. Right, yeah, and that doesn't happen until Avum Quintus. I mean, we see, like, an ur-capitalism uh, in, like, the later ages of Avum Quintus, but people t- were too busy, busy just, like, beating the shit out of each other to ever bother to, like, you know, nobody could produce wealth because so much money was just going towards warfare. Yeah, so oddly enough... We see that um, vampires did not invent capitalism. 
No, they didn't, um, which is kind of an interesting separation from like common sentiments of the ways that they're portrayed in, in pop culture. Yeah, vampires are actually more like... Um, Libs? Know, hmm? Liberals? No, 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 I was going to say... <laughs> no, I was not going to call vampires <laughs> liberals. No, I was going to describe them more so as like uh, aristocracy. Oh, I was I thought you were going like I've heard I've heard like an argument before where like vampires are liberals and zombies are republicans basically like how this. they're viewed and vilified by the other you know like mindless consumers versus uh like hyper passionate uh you know like you know always pushing pushing the boundaries kind of people Sure Anyways uh you know unrestrained passion um but yeah so okay so but this idea is super engaging to me because what are what are the sins of government as interpreted by the Shrouded Empire? You know, we have things that we will never be able to shake because, you know, in many ways, you know, smarter people than me have argued that government is a necessary evil, evil nonetheless, um, or that it only brings well, yeah, about Yeah, it's because it's domination. Yeah. And I think we see this with the whole vampire thing. I think we can continue on this line of vampire, right, dominating the the cattle so as to produce their own good, right? And yeah. then, right, we have a chain of domination going all the way at the top with the tyrant, right? The tyrant vampire, the vampire lord, mm-hmm. dominating the, the lesser vampires. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's domination. And we don't see this with the angelic kind of view. Mm-hmm. Though we do see this with the dwarven capitalism, still, interestingly enough. But basically, I think the leftover is the fact that few people have great power that they wield against the many. Yeah, I guess I'm just trying to think, like, how do I I put this? A lifestyle changes the way that you come at the world. You know, both people might want, like, two people might want to gain some power, but because one person grew up uh, surrounded by their parents constantly talking about politics, they'll interpret that like, okay, political power is real power, and they might try and push for that, whether it be through a state office or through, you know, rebellion, you know, through, through um, you know, protests and stuff. But another person might interpret, like, I seek to gain power, and their parents were always financiers, and they were concerned with every dollar they spent. So they said, ah, true power is, you know, financial, you know? And so, you know, either because either they become a penny pincher or you know, try and become very successful through networking. Or... I understand. Yeah. Where I'm going with this is basically like, how does having the vampiric lifestyle make things look different than... Yes. Like, how does it change their approach, I guess, to governance? It is, as I said, with domination, except let me be more explicit. It's yeah. that and putting power not in the hands of the people, but rather in one trustworthy oh, leader. Okay, sure. Yeah, lots of autocracy, lots of yes, unquestioned kingships. kingship. Yeah, totally. So maybe it doesn't yeah. look actually all that different from the way that like things already look. Do you think that there's any delegation? Is it... Because I think yeah. in, the, in a house of vampires, if you have a tyrant and you have all of the lessers, like I think the lessers still have... They might need to pay tribute to yes. the, uh, to them uh, to the to the tyrant, but they kind of still have their own. You, you you can never really truly leash a vampire like they they still have their own will and they'll fight for it, you know, tooth and nail. Yeah, and I think this is something that er, that kind of the, these structures were brought up about, right? Having this mm-hmm. idea of like 
if you just kind of like force right these vampires to always obey to your will right they're going to revolt what you need to do yeah. is play them against each other and you have this like competitive aristocracy of yeah. trying to prove which one is the best to the tyrant therefore they're always vying for your favor yeah like i think okay so here's maybe a thought and tell me what you think of this court life as we think of it in like the middle ages the politics within and political intrigue that came from courts oftentimes looked like usurpation constantly replacing the king with a new person trying to install your own lineage i think that it looks different though at least in early to mid avum tertius when there is this infighting among the different families i think that there's almost like a papal position that the tyrant takes where it's like it's unquestioned I guess even more so than when you think of, like, the the medieval papacy, that I wonder if they leave the tyrant alone. Whoever is, like, the leader of the family, it is not even a question. It's like you just kind of, they're just always going to be what they are because they're an institution that actually asks pretty little of me as a, you know, they're they're content to just sort of, like, live in their languid paradise of, you know, of, you know, blood fountains or whatever. Yep. And maybe all of the infighting and stuff really comes from the siblings, if you will. It's inter-house, yeah. Yes, within the house. So, like, maybe if you have a, you know, yeah, a bunch of lords and ladies, a a tyrant would remain in place for a long-ass time, like maybe a couple thousand years even, especially because towards the later end of their life, they could easily portray the figureheady feel about them though they might actually you know be much more conscious and aware by you know wearing the circlet or whatever yeah i don't know i'm just getting this picture that like it's a lot more infighting in between the houses and 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 playing them against each other than it is you know trying to go after the lead position interestingly enough each house kind of mirrors the society in a way that like right the head of the house is as to the tyrant Yes. Basically, the head of the house is their little mini-tyrant, and they rule their house in the same way. Yeah. Except, right, because the Shroud Empire is alone, it is the Mm -hmm. only empire. Right. If there were other empires, right, it would act as if, right, the houses do. They would fight, but Uh there's no other. But there is no other, right. So I think, I, I almost think, like, there's... Maybe I'm trying too hard to make this look different from medieval politics. I think it just has, you kind of can't really get away from that. You know, we have this major difference of, okay, yeah, go ahead. So we've established that back in the olden days, in the golden hour, there was division in who did what. Yeah, it was delegation. People kind of did their own thing. It was, honestly, it's the perfect picture of an anarchy because everybody was on the same playing field, actually equal. I'm talking like, uh, like um, let's look at like Rukin's like distorted view. Sorry, not Rukin. Okay. Um, sure. Rorark. Oh, Rorark's, Rorark's yeah, distorted yeah, yeah. view. Yeah. Right. Which uh, references eight episodes eight and nine. If you are curious about Rorark, we're not going to really get into the history here, but you can check it out in those. Yeah, Rorark is divided into houses, mm-hmm. and each house is responsible for a certain kind of work. Right. Right. One is responsible for warfare, one is responsible for magical study and the production of mages. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, one looks over is... agriculture, and we don't mention this enough, but the undead <laughs> run agriculture in Rorark. We'll have to talk about that sometime when we talk about the undead. Yeah. And so, right, we have important uh, separation, and each one, right, 
becomes more important as right politics shift but for the most part war and magic stay on top yeah pretty much yeah with right house aliker the like spy master house right as being right seemingly always behind them mm-hmm. but probably but actually, always on top yes yeah um, rule rule from the back seat exactly situation yeah manipulation um mm-hmm. and so i think we see a similar thing in the beginning of these vampire uh, courts where we have right each house is responsible for certain like things. when they start to fall apart like at the beginning of when they're falling apart or are you saying no, 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 at the, the beginning empire? at the beginning of the Shroud empire we see the similar thing okay yeah of certain houses are responsible for certain things and they're trying to do right be the most productive or whatever and then right this slowly and slowly begins to drift into just everyone trying to do everything better than everyone else yeah yeah you know what and that totally play like it it plays well with this idea that they become more broken in their intents and purposes more divided hyperactive in terms of like how they're shifting from one sentiment to another all the time that they would want to it's 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 almost like i can't control my inner environment so i'll ironclad my outer one if i can't control either I'll at least control this one because this one I can control. So yeah, this inter-house warfare basically eventually becomes like, listen, you know, I know I'm supposed to be the warhouse, but like... I'm mm. doing industry better than you ever did. Exactly. Like, like I we're can... so good at making machines, maybe we should start making other stuff too. Yeah, exactly. Or like, you know, I've, you know, the, the, the mage house is really like slacking on producing mages. Like the mages it creates are like barely competent. I bet mm-hmm. if you give me the, you know, a few of their resources, I can do it a hundred times better. Yeah. And then the tyrant's like, this is great. This will keep you guys fighting against each other and not fighting me. So yes. Yeah. And it almost, I, especially because I think like when you inherit the court politics that are so common in Elvish court where they like treat it like a game of chess that's been played for the last, you know, several like dozen millennia that this idea of of there's just some things that are considered like you know almost like a geneva convention violation like you just don't do this even when you're doing court politics and one of the things is you just never bother touching the king because it's like like why would you need to nobody like nobody else is going to support you trying to like put into position until they do and i think that that is maybe where we're gonna have to call it for tonight because the one time I think maybe there's like one significant time where somebody replaces somebody of incredible power. And maybe that's the thing that starts to cause the actual true downfall of, of the empires. Maybe that's what's responsible for the fact that well, elves we, don't this. have an empire anymore. They have a hold The elves, especially high elves or forest elves. They live in small like holds that they like possess. It's almost like a reservation. Yeah, but we have seen something like this, right? We, if you recall, right, um, House Grimfang rose up against... That's right. Yep. That's right. Because yep. this was right when vampire... Van, vampiracy? Vampirism? Vampiracy? This was in Vampirates. Vampirates. This was in Vampirism was... Um, uh, on the decline and people were, were realizing that right with the return of magic they didn't need to be vampires anymore yes that's right i remember this okay we yeah i right. mean gosh we could do a two-parter on this really we'll see how we feel next time but like there because that's a huge thing we haven't even talked about is like what how did the vampires react 
when magic returned and they didn't have to do vamp- blood magic anymore. Well, the answer is House Grim thing didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, because the Empress actually said, all right, no more vampirism. We don't have to do it anymore. Let's all just not be vampires anymore. Which like didn't sit well with a lot of people within the vampire, uh, like the the shrouded empire. And this caused the it start. It's what was the f- yes. It's what created the first cracks during the, the downfall Civil War. of the shrouded empire. Damn. Okay. Well, I think that might be where we have to leave it. Was there anything that you wanted to go back to and touch on before we called it? Um, liches and soul daggers. I mean, hell yeah. I I mean, was there anything you wanted to add or um? Just that they're cool as shit. <laughs> soul daggers are a thing now. They absolutely are. You just slipped that one right in there, like a yep, dagger you... in between the ribs. I just let that happen, huh? There is some kind of material that these daggers are made from, and they're typically only made as daggers because it's so rare. Mm-hmm. That basically, when you stab someone with it, it absorbs their soul. I think, I mean, dude, I think that it's a corrupted Erebor seed. I know I keep on throwing them out there, but basically anytime we're talking about soul-powered energies, like anything that was like strong enough to do shit with souls, I think it has to be Erebor. Or maybe maybe the finest soul daggers are Erebor, but like those that are stepped down are made of incredibly refined jewel or gemstone. Yeah, it could be like, you know, super diamonds. But they're like one use. Oh yeah, you, you like stab super- it into someone... And then, like, if you transfer their soul to something else, the diamond shatters. Yeah, it shatters. Yeah. Oh, that's cool, dude. A diamond blade. Fuck. I love it. You know, or I imagine it's, like, you know, super, like, magical metal that, like, channels the soul into the, like, giant diamond in the pommel. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So, like, you'd have to have, right, some sort of super magical metal to do the conducting. But I think the airborne blades are literally just entirely crystal blades. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Do you have anything you want to go back to? Yeah, what was... We were talking about... There was that fork in the road. What was the other path, the first one I mentioned? The, like, shadow of the vampiric... Yeah. Government yes. on modern government? We kind of... Oh, yeah, well, I mean, that was the thing that we talked about. What was the thing we didn't talk about? Maybe they I kind of were was... both of the same thing? I think you wanted to further expound on it. Okay. Well, yeah, like, I guess... You're right. Um, I don't have anything to add to that then. <laughs> guess maybe right. if I'll come up with something in the future, I'll, I'll let you know. That's, uh, that's actually us for tonight then, everyone. So thank you for listening. Um, we hope you've enjoyed this exploration into the lands of Sadar and the realms beyond and perhaps found some good material to add to your own stories. Um, you can reach us at the Lore Keepers on Twitter or email us at lorekeeperspodcast at gmail.com if you've got questions or thoughts or things that you would like us to talk about. Uh, if you've got um mental blocks in your own world building uh send us a question about something in our own world and maybe we can jumpstart something for you you can follow us on itunes stitcher google play or wherever you listen to podcasts like spotify and google podcasts if you like us give us a five-star rating which helps ton or even better spread the word tell others about us tell your mom tell your vampire mom tell your vampire matron yeah, tell your, let your tyrant know about us. I'm sure they've got great circles. Yep. If you live in North Korea. <laughs> or America. Oh, I thought we were getting, not getting socially Zing. political. <laughs> oh, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks, thanks to Josh Silker for his composition of Land of Heroes, Lorekeeper's theme, and thanks to you all for listening. Until next time, don't forget, 
there are always more tales to tell. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.